Let's pray. Spirit of the living God, take the words that I speak. Take them through the internet to wherever they're being listened to. And may your spirit reach those to whom you want to speak this morning. Amen. Since Easter, we have been working through a series called The Reborn Identity. We have been looking at how God views us or what the Bible has to say about who we are. And we have thought about how God longs for us to know him intimately as a loving father. That Jesus came that we might become God's children. But sometimes that's easier said or read than believed. Last time I spoke to you, we talked about how it doesn't always feel like that. Others can accuse us and say, you say you're a Christian and yet you act like that. Or perhaps we're very good at beating ourselves up over what we get wrong. And we struggle to accept ourselves. So we wonder, how could God accept me? And we saw that's nothing new. It's been true of followers of Jesus for as long as there have been followers of Jesus. We saw how Paul told some early Christians in Rome about God's spirit, reminding them that we don't have to live in fear. Reminding us that we are God's children. We need reminded that nothing can separate us from God's love. We need reminded that as Philip Yancey says in What's So Amazing About Grace, nothing we do will make God love us more and there is nothing we can do that will make God love us less. We need reminded because we so easily forget. But that's not the only problem with truly believing we are God's children or accepting how God sees us. Both halves of that Yancey statement are important. And you could say last time we focused more on how nothing could make God love us less. Well, this morning I want to think more about the first bit, that nothing we can do makes God love us more. Because God loves us more than we can possibly imagine already. Another reason why we struggle to see ourselves as God sees us is because part of us wants it to be because of what we've achieved. For as long as humans have believed in God's, we have had this drive to keep God's happy, to keep them on side. We have lived with insecurity about whether we've done something to offend them. But we've also tried positively to keep them on side, to live proactively. So we live in such a way as that there's something that we can do which is going to make God love us more. And that's what this morning's passage is about. As Christians, we can claim our relationship with God is made possible purely through what Jesus has done for us. But we can still struggle to shake off those primal insecurities that surely it ought to be about something we've done or achieved. Part of us might even want it to be like that because it gives us some sense of control. And we might not phrase it like this, but part of us wants to think that God owes us one. And just as the struggle that we considered last time was nothing new, so is this one. The words that Jessica brilliantly read for us were written by the same Paul who wrote the, to the Romans in the passage we considered a couple of weeks ago. 
And Paul was someone for whom having that intimate relationship with God was hugely important. He's speaking of this relationship where he is drawn ever closer to God in that father-child type way. Paul describes it wanting that more than anything. But he also goes to great lengths to emphasise that ultimately that's down to what God has done for us in Christ and not what he did to get God on side. So in a sense, he was reminding the Romans that nothing we could do would make God love us less. And today he's reminding the Philippians that there's nothing we have done that's making God love us more. And Paul says, if that was going to work for anyone, it would have been him. In verses four to six, he lists his credentials. He effectively said, if God was going to be pleased with anyone, it was me. Now, this was a time when the church was predominantly Jewish. The first really big debate in the early church was whether Gentiles who converted to Christianity had to become Jews first. And Paul argued against that point and won. But there was still a bit of a hangover from that debate. It seems that some were saying, well, we're still more Christian and that God is more pleased with us because they'd been born Jewish and Jesus was a Jew. Well, says Paul, I've been a really devout Jew from birth. And he goes on to say, if you want to play some kind of holy top trumps game, he'd take on all comers. And he'd win. He not only knew his Bible or our Old Testament, he would almost certainly have been able to recite the whole thing. And it wasn't just head knowledge. He knew how to apply it. He says he was a Pharisee. Now, to us, that might not be considered a good thing. We have heard stories of Jesus and how he always seemed to be arguing with Pharisees. We think of them as legalistic or worse, hypocritical. But that's not how Paul and the Jews of his day would have understood it. Pharisees were highly respected. They really tried to live out the scriptures as they understood them. Paul says if you could list all the things that God would have wanted someone to do, he'd have been able to tick off the whole lot. Now we might beg to differ. After all, he was partly responsible for the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And elsewhere he suggests Stephen's was not the only death he had a hand in. But even then he claimed to be acting out of zeal. And zeal is another word which has come to be understood negatively. And it's not necessarily a negative trait. Too few people have a real passion for anything. And zeal was one of Paul's character strength. He really cared about God's honour. But sometimes the strength gets misdirected. And causes more damage than we realise. And that was what happened with Paul. Even so, so far as Paul's concerned, he says, if anyone could have made God love them more by what they did, it would have been him. But given all that, it's interesting what he does not say. He doesn't say, I had all that going for me, and then I found something else to add to it. No, he said, it was all a great big waste. It was rubbish compared with what he had found in Jesus. 
If anything, it got in the way. I remember doing my economics degree. By the time I went to university, we didn't have one big set of finals at the end. My final grade was based on four sets of exams taken over two years. And they were all equally weighted. So by the last set of exams, I had a fairly good idea of what grade I was going to get. And you could get a first, a 2-1, a 2-2, or also known as a Desmond, or a third. And before the last set of exams, I was sitting on a 2-1. And I worked out I had to do impossibly well to get a first. I mean, like, score 120% in the exams. And, you know, it wasn't going to happen. But I also knew I had to do really, really badly to drop to a 2-2. And even better, we'd done all the really hard stuff. What I'd achieved so far, I thought, meant my degree was safe. You know what? I came uncomfortably close to pulling off that seemingly impossible drop in grade. My past achievements somehow got in the way. And Paul says it was like that for him. If anyone had any grounds for self-confidence when it came to keeping God happy, it was him. But it wasn't working. For Paul, knowing God in intimate relationship was extremely important. But he speaks of two ways of trying to achieve that in his life. It was like he was holding up two certificates. Rather like I'm doing now. This one is my A-level certificate. It shows that a scarily long time ago, I got a grade A in economics and a B in political studies. But I also have another certificate. This is from the University of Bums on Seats. It's quite an old website, but if you've never seen it, check it out. It's quite funny. The University of bums on seats proudly offers a variety of different degrees at all sorts of levels to anyone who can press control and P on a printer. And this certificate declares that I have an MBA in the very important subject of practical tea making and biscuit procurement. Other degrees available include looking busy, also known as advanced management studies, and post-feminist needlework. So say I were to go for a job interview, which do you think would be of interest to a potential employer? My A-level certificate or my University of Bums on Seats certificate? You'd like to think it was going to be the school one. The UBS one might suggest that I have a sense of humour but it's actually not worth the cost of either the paper it's printed on or the ink I use to print it. And it's like Paul was holding up two certificates and saying, which one of these is going to carry weight with God? One being right in my own eyes and self-certifying or the other one, what God has done. But the question is, how good is good enough? 
Paul says it doesn't work. And if it didn't work with him, for him with his credentials, it's not going to work for us. But then he says, oh, it's not the only certificate on the market. Rather than taking the initiative and reaching up to God, God has taken the initiative and reached down to us. The door has been thrown open because of what Jesus has done for us. And here where my analogy breaks down, because this certificate did actually require a bit of effort. Whereas with what's being said here, God's not looking for what we're bringing to the party. He has opened the door through faith in Jesus and what he's done. Are we prepared to walk through that? Paul realised that for all he had to offer, for all the standing he had, all the things he was relying on were pretty useless for achieving that intimate relationship with God that he so craved. But when he says he really wants that relationship, he's speaking he wants a really deep relationship with our knowledge of God. I mean, picking someone at random. You might ask me if I know the guy who runs the cake shop just up from the church or towards the station. And I could say, well, yeah, I've met him. And I'd recognise him on the street. But if you were to ask me what he'd like for his birthday, or even when his birthday is, what football team he supports, in fact, any other question other than where does he work, don't have a clue. There's knowing someone and having a real relationship with him. And it's that second sense that Paul's speaking of, where you have a real deep relationship with God. He's not content to say a prayer and secure a passport to heaven. Paul wants to know Jesus and his heavenly father better and better. He speaks of wanting to know God's power in his life. The power of resurrection, the power to know that whatever he faces, he is never beyond the reach of God. That God can reach into even the most darkest parts of his life, where it seems all hope is gone. And God can transform even that. I imagine if I were to ask, would you like to know God's power in your life? Most of us would probably say yes, and I don't even think that's just restricted to people of faith. But real relationships get stronger when you go through the mill together. Wedding vows include phrases like, for better or worse, richer or poor, sickness and health. And the good stuff, it's really great, but it's actually in the tough stuff. That you really see what the other person's like. When Paul talks about participating in suffering and becoming like Jesus in his death, he's not a masochist. He's just highlighting that he's prepared to go through the tougher side of the relationship because the relationship itself is worth it. For all the stuff that happened to him, and there was plenty, Paul didn't spend his life looking for trouble. But trouble came to him and it comes to us. And sometimes it comes to us as it did with Paul, not despite being faithful to what God wants, but because of it. Paul says when that happens, 
He wants us to be like Jesus. That Jesus himself did not long to face the trouble he faced on the cross and the suffering of the cross. In Gethsemane, he prayed earnestly for another way. But he faced it trusting that God could give even death a new outcome. And it's that kind of trusting relationship that Paul says he longs for. Into every life trouble comes. And we can spend forever asking why, trying to explain. But it is. The truth is, that's life. Not all of it we can sort for ourselves. Not all of it is sorted to our satisfaction. And sometimes it will take the power that raised Jesus from the dead to make anything good come of this. We need that resurrection power to take us through it. A lot of it only makes sense when it's given a new ending by God. The real choice is whether we'll go through it with God or without him. God invites us to face it with him. He's not relying on us being perfect or even half decent. Nothing we do is going to make God love us more. He already loves us far more than we can imagine. He's just asking us to trust him, to stick with him. Those who go through the dark stuff with him discover just what God is capable of. They find that he is the one that can take all things and use them for our good in ways that are beyond our seeing or imagining. But it's those who have been through the mill before and seen God bring them out the other side, who have experienced God's resurrection power before, who are more likely to be able to trust him when trouble comes knocking again. They're the ones who have come to see that nothing separates them from the love of God. They're the ones who have come to know God in that deep, intimate manner, as a father they can trust to hold them through all things. They're the ones who truly know that whatever they face, God can give it a new meaning, because God will speak the final word. They are the ones who discover the power of resurrection. Grace and peace to you. Amen.